1: The Mirror Football Podcast with Sam Matterface.
2: This week on the Mirror Football Podcast, England score six goals, get three points and still we're not that happy. We find out why. Are we falling or have we fallen out of love with the beautiful international game? That's not the case for Sanchez Coutinho and Johnny Evans who are coming back from representing their country to a club they thought they'd left behind. Darren Lewis gives us the latest inside gossip on who's happy and who's not. He knows. Plus, Tottenham's former executive director on the new stadium, the bail deal he negotiated, and what Beckham's new franchise means for the MLS. Plus, we'll speak to Andy Dunn, the chief sports writer of The Mirror. And remember, you can subscribe to The Mirror Football Podcast throughout the week via iTunes. All you have to do is is go on your iTunes app on your iPhone or on your Mac or whatever, press the button and get involved with us. Right, let's talk about international football uh, because in the pod this week is Big Tom, the producer, and Andy Dunn, the chief sports writer uh, from The Mirror. Hi, Andy. How are you? You're okay?
3: Very good, thanks, Sam. Very good.
2: Thanks very much for joining us. Now, you've been very busy uh, this week. Uh, You've been watching a lot of England, haven't you?
3: Yeah, away with with England in Malta on Friday night and obviously then last night at Wembley, so it's been yeah an interesting few days, um, in, in a way, so ending far more positively than it started, um, even though they won 4-0 in Malta, but um, I think overall, after this latest england camp, you know, a feeling certainly within the camp, I'm not sure whether outside the camp, but a feeling of positivity. Yeah, I mean,
2: that is interesting, isn't it? Because it looks as if they made hard work of it in Malta. I know they managed to get the win against Slovakia, but they went 1-0 down in that game. You mentioned about the outside, um, everyone feeling as if it's just a little bit dull now. But Gareth Southgate, he, he thinks any criticism of his team is, is, is over the top, doesn't he?
3: Well, actually, he took the criticism quite well on Friday. I, I, I was interested in how he responded because he could easily have said to us, you know, the, the, the reports um, were very, very, very damning of England's performance. He could easily have said, Gareth could easily have said to us, hang on a minute, guys, you know, we've just won this game four nil. We've won four nil away from home. He then could have pointed out on, on, you know, over the next couple of days, how France only drew nil nil against Luxembourg. He could have pointed out that there are. Very, very, very few landslide victories against these smaller teams. He could have said that, but he didn't. Instead, he sort of he said that it was probably a good learning curve for the young players. Because those young players would have picked up the newspapers on Saturday morning or clicked online and read the newspapers on Saturday morning. And I think they would have been a bit surprised how critical we were, how critical the writers were, how critical the media in general were of England's performance. I think those young players, you know, I think Harry Kane would have picked up the newspaper, Delhi Alley, and would have said, hang on a minute, guys, we've just won 4-0. And I think they also would have been looking around the stadium on Friday nights when the England fans are leaving in droves before the end. They would have heard the England fans um, criticising their own team. And that would have been a big, you know, quite a jolt to the system. So I actually think that Southgate used that and said to them, look, you know, this is what it now means to be an England player. This is the scrutiny you're under. You can win 4-0, but you can still get criticised. And I think that probably served them um, well yesterday when they had some adversity yesterday. In terms of the apathy, I think you know, I, I think last night it was... I, don't, I thought it was quite a good attendance last night. What I, did, what I do think, what I do get the sense of is that people, we've been here so many times, easy qualification, routine qualification... And then everyone's just waiting for the tournament to start proper because we really are struggling to make judgments until it comes to the crunch where we fail failed so many times.
2: Um, it's, it's fascinating, really, isn't it, that um, we're in a situation where uh, international football is not as appealing as it used to be. I did the game between Portugal and Hungary on Sunday and I caused a massive stir because I, I came out afterwards and I've been bored to tears, Andy. I've got to be completely honest <clears> with <throat> you. And um, I said, Portugal is so boring. Mm-hmm. And they play boring football. If they didn't have Ronaldo in the team, no one would talk about them. And obviously, I've got the inevitable barrage of uh, they're European champions, blah 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 blah. But they, if you ever watch Portugal, and I don't know if you you know if you remember Tom, during the European Championships, they won one game in ninety minutes. Yeah, they weren't the most it's swashbuckling European champions. But I wonder whether or not a lot of international football. Is like this, and and this is why we notice it certainly in terms of listeners, viewers, website clicks, paper buying, everything. It all goes down over that international break. Why is that? Do you think, Andy?
3: I think uh, for a variety of reasons. One of which is I think the qualification system and the qualification process is too long. It's too um, it's too drawn out. You have too many games where essentially one team is set up to defend. And the other team is set up to try and break them down um an imbalance in possession i think the the, the process is too far drawn out so and then add on top of that the international friend with it um it just makes it there's more of it and it's less appealing also don't forget it is this time of year people are excited about the beginning of their domestic leagues i'm sure it's the same in portugal it's certainly the same here with the premier league it's underway it's three games into the league. Everyone's excited. The transfer window's just, just just closed. Everyone is buzzing to see how their clubs are going to do. And then they have this break. And they sort of feel a bit, I think club fans feel a bit a bit shortchanged, a bit sort of let down, say, hang on a minute, we've only just started this league and now we've got this break. So I do think there's an element of the timing of the calendar. I think that needs to be looked at overall. I do think the whole qualification process needs to be looked at, whether we do need a streamlining of that in terms of, you know, teams like Malta, um, you know, no disrespect, um, whether they need to be in their own group, and so that we get maybe a more a trimmed down qualification system. Because I think at the moment, the qualification system does not appeal. And in the end, if we look at these groups, if we look at these groups now, at these nine European World Cup qualifying groups, if we'd have looked at them at the start, when these groups were drawn, groups of five, groups of six, when they were drawn, if we looked at them, me, you, Tom, we could have said who's going to finish top of those groups. And I'll tell you what, we probably be, would have been right uh, in each individual group. It is that there's very, very few groups in qualification where you find a surprise winner. Very few indeed. So the predictability of that also lessens the, the international appeal.
4: I absolutely agree with you, Andy, about reforming the qualification system. But what struck me is that I've... Been left cold by the England national team for a while now, but the difference, even on social media, between the Northern Irish fans who seem to be really engaged in yeah. this process and the England fans is so stark. Well, I mean, what do you make of that difference?
3: Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a very good point because I was only saying on on Friday night um, when we were in Malta, and you know, you're you at the game, and, and it's a good turnout from English fans. You know, make no mistake. English fans take a really good number of people abroad wherever they go. I mean, they held it as Malta; it's a nice destination. You can combine it with a little bit of a holiday and get in those, you know, last days of sunshine for the summer. However, what I did notice um, while I was at the game is, is checking on social media how few posts there were about England, Malta. What, what, what there was what was probably critical, but unusually, I thought it was a stark drop in the amount of interest on social media. And, and you know, I mean, the fact is. And the responses to you know what what we put out there on social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, our responses to England now are getting a little bit less. Um, and, and again, look, last night I think that was also similar on social media. What I would say again about the crowd is that I think the crowd is almost sixty eight thousand. know, and that is a great crowd. You know, we take for granted the interest in England from home fans. Yeah, you know, sixty eight thousand will be. I mean, listen, it, 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 I, I assume the biggest international. Qualification crowd of the whole of the whole double-headed program um, in the European qualifying stages this week. So that so that's good, but I do get the feeling, you know, and this is you know anecdote when you talk to your mates when you're out for a pound, your mates, you know, they are sort of, well, and I see that's because that's the effect, the the, the absolute effect of a dismal um, tournament campaign into. 2010, in 2012, and in 2014. That's why the interest is gone. When we had the golden generation, so called, and failed in 2002, 2004, and 2006. In those three tournaments, there was hope for the following tournament. You know, we, we went out, but we went out in rather unfortunate fashion. We went out on penalties. You know, Rooney got injured in, in in 2004 at a crucial stage, etc., etc. So there was always hope, and I don't think that. 2010, 2012, and 2014, and, uh, and 2016, of course, have given us any. I, I think people that drip, drip effect of of a, of not just a failure of the tournaments, but a really poor failure, has had its effect overall on the on the enthusiasm of the fans until we get to the actual stuff that counts next summer. Uh,
2: one man who's never full of anything other than enthusiasm is Marcus Rashford. Um, he was left out uh, for the game on uh, Friday, was back in the team on Monday. Jose left him out, actually, for their game against Leicester prior to the international break. Has everybody now got to come to the conclusion that this guy has to be playing for everyone from the start, Week in, week out.
3: Uh, yeah, I don't think Josie will come to that conclusion. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, however, I think, uh, think Gareth Southgate should. Interesting, you know, it was, um, I mean, not that, it, not that it makes a great deal of difference, but yesterday was actually the um, month anniversary of Sam Allardyce's first and only game in charge of England. It was the, the start and finish of his perfect record as England manager <laughs> when he won in Slovakia 1-0. That one and only game. And strange enough, you know, I remember the squad announcement for that game, and I remember Sam not putting Marcus Rashford in the squad. He put him in the under twenty ones, and I thought to myself at that time, you know what? How can we ignore, even though he was what he was eighteen at that time, but he still made a big impact. How can we ignore? We don't have enough game-changing young talents to be able to 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 to, to play around to, to ignore this type of player. And I think, you know, I mean, I mean, yesterday. He didn't play against Malta, but then again, Southgate could actually say, you know what, I was justified. I brought him on for twenty minutes against tired legs, and he and and he changed the game. He sort of he he gave the game a gloss that maybe the performance didn't deserve. But he should have played against Malta to start with. It was a pretty much a, an obvious choice to play him last night. I didn't think I don't think the right hand side suits him. I think he's better coming in off that left hand side, which they switched after half an hour. But in answer to his question, Yes, we don't have enough game-changing players. Now, Rashford is 19. He's going to have, um, you know, vagaries of form. He's going to be. He might be in an out. He, he might make mistakes like clearly he made one last night. However, I just think the likes of Rashford and Deli Ali. These are players who are rare in English football at the moment. Who can who, who can change a game? Who who can define a game? Who can decide a game like Marcus Rashford eventually did last night? And I just think you've got to, in a way, ignore. Um, dips or troughs and peaks in form he's um, he's 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 someone who can go to Russia and he's someone we can actually genuinely say he can change a game he can make the sort of impact that Rooney made in 2004.
4: Speaking of young talent uh, when Ben Woodburn uh, lit up the game for Wales the other day how, how much of a look-in do you think he'll get at Liverpool with Coutinho staying with Oxlade Chamberlain added to the ranks do you think he'll get much of a look-in this year for Liverpool?
3: You, you, you know what? I, I wouldn't. I, I was slightly surprised. Slightly surprised. Not, not that that he didn't um, go on loan. Um, I don't know whether that will still be an option later in the season. Maybe um, in a January transfer window, or maybe even. I just think that you know everyone around Liverpool has been at serious pains to basically keep a lid on any Ben Woodburn hype. Um, I think Klopp's going to take it, you know, very carefully. Um, he's young, you know. He's, he's obviously a younger player than Rashford, so I just think I don't think we'll see an awful lot of him. I mean, we will see more of him clearly when Liverpool's commitments become um, more arduous, when when the cup competitions um, kick in. So we'll probably see him in, in the in the EFL Cup and the in the FA Cup. You may well see him in the Champions League when there's games that maybe you know are not so much dead rubbers, but you, you know games that Liverpool can afford. Uh, once their fate is decided, maybe play him in a couple of those. Um, I think he'll, they'll take it very, very, very gingerly with Ben Woodburn. Um, yes, and, and it was um, it was a great goal. Um, what what that surprised me with Ben Woodburn. This is just an aside. Mm-hmm. Is how um, how it was you know sort of taken for granted, or how he committed himself. Um, to Wales in the end.
2: Um, I was going to ask you about that actually, because he yes. was born in Nottingham. He was brought up in yes. Chester. I mean, there's sort of a, a few sort of similarities with Giggs Michael Owen and there well. and and Ryan Giggs. Yes. But what what? Why did they manage to snaffle him up so quickly in England? Didn't and I, are England I, kicking themselves?
3: I, I, well, I would have thought they, they are. And um, you yeah, know, I mean, I mean, the I connection mean, with Wales, I wouldn't be in the, city. the only connection is his grandfather grandfather is from Swansea. But Wales, Wales got him at a very early age, you know, at a schoolboy age, and, and I think he developed a sort of um, a bond there. Yes, I I, I'm still, I think England will be kicking themselves. Again, England, you know, <laughs> what England likes to... Do, well, let me say, it, one of England's issues, and we've seen it in other instances, Wilfred Zahar, for example, it, 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 is a prime instance, is that England still has, um, how shall I put this, um, probably pride isn't... It, an, an arrogance they,
2: that everyone's going to choose them in the end.
3: Basically, yeah. But I, I was going to say an inflated opinion of the <laughs> that, that England, England can afford... 100%. That England can afford to sort of say, right, you know, you either you either want to play for England or you don't. You're either English or you are. You know, you, you, we're not going to go to you. We're not going to go to Wilfred Zahar. When the Ivory Coast come calling, we're not going to go to you and say, you know, listen, you, you're better off with us. Look at us. We're, we're bigger than them. We're better than them. We're this, we're that. And England will... will basically, England feel that their history... Their tradition, not their recent tournament results, but their history and tradition, means that you know, in, if you if you're not 100% want to play for England, you shouldn't need persuading. We've seen that many, many, many times, and I just think there was an element of that where, where hang on a minute, like, you know, um, you know, if, if you want to play for us, you're eligible for, for us. Just just come, just come along and make yourself available. Um, Wales got in very quick. Wales made sure, and of course now now he's played senior football. That's just about that. But, you know, I don't think England have got enough young players, even though their youth sides obviously have done well in the summer, to be able to sort of say, you know, that's it. You know, we're not going to explore every avenue. But listen, in the end, if the player feels Welsh, then he's Welsh.
2: Andy, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Appreciate that. Um, And I'm sure we'll see you very, very soon. That's Andy Dunn, the chief sports writer of The Mirror. Andy, have a good day.
3: And you're in. Get in touch on
1: Instagram or Twitter.
2: It's time for Big Tom's Big News. It's all the information you really need, but don't necessarily know it. You might not get the likes and the retweets for
4: it, but it's important. What you got for us this week? Well, this week um, it's really an attempt to re engage with international football. Oh, please, do it. Well, it's not just the familiar disappointment of the English national team, albeit they won, um, or the kind of corrupt infection of FIFA. But many fans are just, they can't stomach the stale and uninspiring football anymore. That's what we were talking about with
2: Andy Dunn wasn't it? The lack of responses on Twitter and Absolutely. Facebook and the lack of clicks on the website, etc.
4: Now Malta's game, I'm told, didn't watch it myself, uh, was a further example of this kind of international's huff and puff to the Premier League's cut and thrust. Scotland were all right. Yeah, and hopefully will continue to be. Um, but there is an alternative competition Ah, uh, and not just one for footballing hipsters who, you know, like their espressos from a Toby jug beside bare brick walls, much like yourself, like me, yeah, sounds like uh, me. Um, but this weekend saw the unveiling of the 2018 Kanifa World Football Cup. Sounds like a plant World Cup. Kanifa, I see what you've done there. No, actually, Kanifa is the acronym of the Confederation of Independent Football Associations, and they offer a competitive and non-profit football. For a range of nations or ethnic groups uh, who could not be, or perhaps would not be, represented by FIFA, a sort of FC United of Manchester or okay. AFC, AFC Wimbledon, Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, their member teams range from kind of countries like Tibet or Quebec, so not necessarily recognised nations. Okay. Now, Kanifa might offer the chance to rediscover a raw love for the game, or it might be terrible football with a romantic backstory. Either way, for me, it's going to be preferable to these international fixtures. But it's a big tournament and it's
2: happening in London, right?
4: Absolutely. So I think
2: maybe people get
4: behind it. The Mirror Football Podcast.
2: Well, let's find out who's happy and unhappy going back to their clubs after the international break. Um, It's a little bit like uh, going back to school after the first half term, Mm -hmm. and you think you're going to make it into the top set. And you didn't quite get there, so you're still in with all those kids you didn't think that you were going to be uh, in the class. That with. felt a bit personal. Is there is there a backstory? There? Always, in the yeah. set, <laughs> always in the top set, actually. Uh, always in the top set. Darren Lewis is always in the top set. Uh, he's uh, from the mirror, and he's always got his ear to the ground and his uh, his face planted to the dressing room doors of every single Premier League club. How you doing? You're right. Oh well, I'm good. Let's discuss that. You know, the idea of going back and you don't really want to go back. Who is going to be the unhappy player going into uh, the dressing room when they come back from international break? Will it be Sanchez, Coutinho, Van Dyke, Johnny Evans? Who will it be?
5: I think uh, Van Dyke definitely, Uh, and that's if the Southampton fans will have him back in a Southampton shirt. Because with that transfer request, he pretty much burned all of his bridges with the club, with the fans, with any anyone with a connection uh, with Southampton. So it'll be a bit of a, a case of his towel between his legs, him going back. But, you know, Alexis Sanchez is going to be fascinating because he wanted to go, believed he'd gone, believed the deal had been done, had a party with the Chile players on international duty, <laughs> and then found actually it's not quite happening. It's a bit like someone depositing a load of money in your account by mistake. Has <laughs> <laughs> that ever happened to you? Because it's never happened to me. It never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not. But the, the point being that as far as he's concerned, he is back then. Nobody believes that he's committed anymore to Arsenal. Um, he doesn't feel that they're good enough to challenge for the league, he doesn't feel that they've got a chance of competing for the Champions League. The dressing room is in a mess, as we all know. And I think, as far as he is concerned, he's waiting for the next opportunity that he can get to get away to Manchester City. The problem for Arsenal is that it is no kind of victory whatsoever, Sanchez staying, because they will lose a £60 million asset for free next year, he could negotiate a deal with a foreign club in January, and he doesn't want to be there, he's not committed, he's not enamoured with the lack of quality in the squad, lack of commitment, lack of warriors within that Arsenal dressing room, everybody knows it, so yeah, of the players that you mentioned, Van Dyke definitely, Sanchez definitely, Coutinho different, I think, with him. Why because do you think I, it's
2: different? Because you were the first to break this story. You spoke to Jürgen Klopp in, in Singapore in the summer and he told you that Coutinho wasn't going anywhere.
5: Yeah, earlier this summer I was in Singapore with a couple of uh, other only two other journalists, and we uh, one night we'd all gone to, retired to our hotel rooms And in the morning, it transpired that there had been a bid from Barcelona, submitted £72 million from Barcelona to Liverpool for Coutinho. And the club were very clear about their position. Not only did they reject the bid, but they did not even want to negotiate with Barcelona. And they were quite bemused by all of these stories in Europe, suggesting here in England that uh, there was a magic number at which they were prepared to do business, or that there were, was a delegation flying over from uh, from England or wherever else to Singapore to talk Turkey with Liverpool officials because there were no officials there to discuss it with Michael Edwards who does their transfer business. He was up in Merseyside. Um, their position was and always has been that Coutinho was not for sale and we spoke to Klopp about it and Klopp said to us look I wasn't manager when Suarez was sold I wasn't manager when Sterling was sold I'm the manager now and we are not selling Coutinho and I've been working for the Daily Mirror for a number of years but seldom do you see a club take the position that Liverpool have and remain absolutely steadfast about it and FSG during August released that statement where they said he will be a player a Liverpool player on September the 1st that's our definitive position and they've maintained it they've not blinked they've not bowed down It's all been smoke and mirrors from Barcelona uh, they, there was a fee they were willing to accept they suggested that they would take it for £200 million pounds if we made it but all nonsense Barcelona as we all know are in a mess Liverpool are in a very strong position I don't think Coutinho will have a problem Uh, coming back to play, he's he's not really of that kind of character like the others are. I think he'll come back. Liverpool are doing well without him, which is key. And I think he'll return and make a sizable contribution uh, to uh, Liverpool's cause. And I have to say, we've got to give credit to FSG for taking the position they did, backing Jurgen Klopp and standing firm. Mm -hmm. I hear so much, so little credit given to them. Or doing that, they've shown that Liverpool want to go in a different direction with the quality of players they've tried to sign, the quality of player they have signed—Mane, uh, Salah, Cater uh, for next year. They still want to sign Virgil Van Dijk. I think that you've got to give Liverpool credit now for saying we are going to go Absolutely. in a different
2: direction. Uh, he's he's nodding his head here, Darren, because he's a massive Liverpool fan, of course. And you, and you I, I, you do you
4: always feel that Coutinho is going to stay? I didn't because it was so topsy turvy. But I think I think Darren's absolutely right, and I think a lot of people it spoilt their narrative. It spoilt the ending of the deal being tied up, and it and it wasn't what the kind of expected storyline was. He stayed, and I, I really do agree that FSG and Klopp should be given maximum credit for this because they kept him under duress, and Barcelona with the. The leak afterwards have just really embarrassed themselves for me.
2: Um, but have Liverpool left them short in the central defensive area because they didn't get that deal done?
5: Well, I think as far as um, Liverpool are concerned...
0: This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love.
1: Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent ACAST app or wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: ACAST is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: And with Van Dyck, and, and this is also quite key because we asked Klopp about, well, look, if you don't get Van Dyke, what then? And he said, look, some people think that I'm just going to go out and buy players for the sake of it. Maybe that's what the club's done in the past, but we want quality. We want to wait for quality. If it's not available to us now, we'll work with what we've got and we'll wait until we get that quality. Cater will provide that in 12 months' time. And this time around, we'll see Klopp's coaching abilities. Um, he already He's already made Andy Robertson uh, look like a, a player because uh, in, in, in the brief appearance that he's made in a Liverpool shirt, He has really impressed a few people. And I wonder if, you know... He scored a great
2: goal for Scotland as well, actually, in the international break.
5: Absolutely. In fact, Liverpool have uh, had a tremendous international break with Andy Robertson scoring, Coutinho scoring, Ben Woodburn scoring as well. Um, They've had a few players uh, showing their quality during the international uh, break. But I think as far as uh, their central defensive partnership is concerned, yeah, they'll have to step up. They know that the spectre of Van Dijk is looming over the club. Van Dijk does want to come to Liverpool. All the other clubs that are interested, yeah, they've got a shout. But I think as far as he is concerned, he wants to go to Liverpool. And if uh, the deal gets done, they will be massively strengthened in the centre of defence. But I still do think they've got a chance on the top four. I I, I really do rate the, the position that the club have taken so far.
2: And let's talk about somebody else who uh, wanted a way but didn't get his way, which is Diego Costa. Uh, he's been named in the Chelsea Premier League squad. Antonio Conte just laughs whenever you ask him about him. I mean, obviously, there's no way back in terms of repairing that relationship. What happens next with this with this saga?
5: I think the deal gets done with Atlético Madrid, um, and he leaves in January. Um, it's quite fascinating to see that he's been named in that squad because I think uh, I, or the rest of the, the other striking contingent, the rest of the striking contingent would have to fall down with food poisoning for him to to, to pull on a <laughs> Kelsey's shirt again. You know, pigs would have to fly, and, you know, Claudia Schiffer would have to get, you know, try and prize me away from Mrs. Lewis, because I think it's never going to happen. I think that as far as Conte is concerned, and this is another one, we were away uh, in uh, the Far East with uh, Antonio Conte, And he sat down with us journalists and he said, for a manager to retain control over his players, his word has to be law in the dressing room. It's very similar to what Sir Alex Ferguson used to say all those years ago. You blink, you lose control, you waver and you're dead, particularly with multi-millionaire footballers. And somebody as combustible as Diego Costa, if you're going to take him on, you need to win that battle. And that's why, for me, Even if they were struggling up front, I can't see a scenario where Conte would still pick Diego Costa in his squad. It might well be that the club wanted him included in there, but as far as Costa pulling on a shirt again for uh, Antonio Conte, given the way that he's derided Conte in the media, given the way that he's defied the club and stayed in Brazil when he was supposed to come back, It's not going to happen
2: for me. He hasn't looked very good in terms of fibre side even though what I've been watching on Instagram, he he doesn't look that sharp.
4: His partying game looks spot on, though, (laughs) to be fair. Um, How about Spurs, Darren? Uh, Vincent Janssen still there. Eric Lamella and him being left out of the Champions League squad. Why do you think that is? And is that not concerning if uh, Lorente, their new signing, gets injured? Have they got the cover there at all? Uh,
5: Well, they haven't got enough. I mean, Son Hoon Min can play up front if Harry Kane isn't available. Um, He does know where the goal is, filled his boots last season. And there was that period last season when Kane wasn't available and they still managed to get some big wins. Uh, But I think as far as Jansen is concerned, they simply don't fancy him anymore. Uh, He came into the side, big fanfare, £17 million, but he doesn't have the quality. And, you know, Spurs have been here before. I think you've got to give credit to Spurs because... When they had Soldado, they tried and they tried and they they tried to sympathise, but he just wasn't good enough. It wasn't going to happen. You've got to say credit to Spurs for cutting their losses now and not trying to kind of dress it up or maybe give him the sympathy vote. Let him go somewhere else, play some football, and and, and maybe rediscover his uh, career somewhere, recapture his uh, career somewhere else. But I think as far as the club are concerned, they look in strong shape. I think obviously we all know defensively they've improved at right back in centre half. But Lorente looks to have not only the quality, 15 goals last season, but also the experience of playing with big clubs, playing with big players. He could be a mentor for Harry Kane in a Champions League group, Real Madrid, Dortmund. That's going to be very, very difficult indeed for Spurs. He is the player who maybe they could bring on late in matches when things aren't going their way. They're plan B, if you like, that aerial power, the quality on the deck, who could help them very, very much indeed. I think he's a terrific signing.
0: OK,
2: big weekend as well for Tottenham Hotspur. They take on Everton. Chelsea have got Leicester. The massive game is Manchester City against Liverpool. Where are you going to be at, Darren?
5: Um, I'm not so sure just yet because we haven't got our allocation for this weekend. But I think all the matches that you you talk about, This weekend, they are key because Everton, they dropped, the Spurs dropped points at Everton last season. And uh, when you see the fine margins by which they lost the league this time around, you realise that they've got to pick it up. They've got to get their their Premier League show on the road, if you like. Uh, Dyer scoring, obviously, for England in midweek. Harry Kane as well scoring for England. So we know that they're in good form, they now need to transfer that into a Spurs shirt. The Man City-Liverpool game is going to be obviously the star attraction for this weekend because Liverpool, well, they absolutely demolished Arsenal, didn't they? But City at home, uh, they will turn it on and they will want to retain that good feeling they had from beating Bournemouth in that last gasp. A victory down at Dean Court. So, uh, a number of good games. I don't know which one I'm going to be at, but whichever one I am at, it will be a corker.
2: Cheers, Darren. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's Darren Lewis from the Mirror joining us uh, this afternoon. and uh, We'll see him very soon. I'm going to be going to Stoke against Manchester United on Saturday. All right. Trip Five to the 30, Potteries. Trip to the Potteries. The Bet365 Stadium. Romelu Lukaku. Uh, see if he can continue his scoring run. Um, might be difficult for him.
1: Get in touch on Instagram.
2: Or Twitter. It is September, so it's time to get Harry Kane back in your fantasy team. No goals in August, but as you've seen over the last few days, September has started with a bang for Harry. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, he never scores in August. He's had all these appearances for England and for Spurs, and then when it comes to September, the 1st of September, yeah. he's scoring goals on the international stage. They've got Everton, as we've just mentioned, with Darren Lewis this weekend. Um, it's going to be a tough game for him, but he will get chances. For me, I'm taking out Romelu Lukaku who's going to Stoke City with Manchester United Bold. and replacing him with Alvaro Morata. The reason being, Morata scored in midweek uh, for Spain. Uh, he also mm. um, has started really well for Chelsea in terms of uh, goal scoring. And Leicester City can see a hell of a lot of goals. If you go back to the beginning of February when Craig Shakespeare uh, took over, no team has been involved in more entertaining games Leicester City. More goals have been scored in those matches involving
4: that team than mm. any other. I've got to leave Lukaku Le in for me. The Harry Kane can't come back in because he's just too expensive. That yeah. the horse has bolted there. I've spent that money elsewhere. Can't do it. There are some bargains, though, aren't there? There are Off some the bargains in the window. Uh, transfer window bargains potentially Renato Sanchez, five million pounds. Yeah, it's not bad, is it's it? Not bad. The Ox coming at Liverpool. Is he gonna start? I'm not sure, six million. But Andrew Robertson, surely 4.9 at left back, scored a worldie for Scotland. He's got to be in your team, surely. Yeah, he was uh, He a cracking performer for Scotland in their game against Lithuania
2: and at home against uh, uh, Malta on Monday night. Uh, he is, however, a Liverpool defender, which would always concern me just a little bit. Yeah. Um, he is very good. Ta- talking of uh, impressive signings, we must applaud West Bromwich Albion. Do not forget to mind the West Bromwich Albion squad. Gregor Krakowiak, a winner, serial winner with Sevilla. Who is that? Krakowiak. Okay. Um, and uh, Oliver Burke okay, and Kieran Gibbs as well and I think Kieran Gibbs is going to be a really good signing for West Bromwich Albion apparently he's trained really really well and they've they've kept Johnny Evans as well remember everyone thought he was going to go to Manchester City it didn't happen he stayed with West Bromwich Albion and they should be uh, congratulated I'm sure Tony Pulis treated himself to a £100 gift voucher (laughs) in the club shop after uh, keeping those players and doing those
4: deals. They've got a lot of defenders now. Who's going to be in? Who's going to be those four defenders in? It's going to be a tricky one because usually you'd punt on West Brom defenders, but now they've got a few to choose from. The Mirror
2: Football Podcast.
4: Well, I'm delighted to say that live from Mirror HQ, we've got the
2: president of Atlanta United, Darren Hills, the former executive director at Tottenham Hotspur, who negotiated some of the biggest deals in that club's history. He joins us on the line now. Hi, Darren. How are you?
6: Hi, Sam. Yeah, good, thanks. Enjoying the London weather.
2: (laughs) Thanks very much for coming on the programme. I know it's very, very different uh, being in London than it is in Atlanta. Uh, How's the MLS been treating you? Okay.
6: Yeah, it's been great, thanks. We're in our first season, so we're an expansion team. And, you know, we're halfway through the season. We're averaging 46,500 crowds, which is is pretty incredible. It would put us 24th in Europe. So, you know, it's pretty amazing to think that a new team in America can be getting audiences like that. And on the pitch, is going great. We're in the playoff position, so we're, we're excited about the last or third of our season.
2: Yeah, I was looking at it. It's one of the highest, it is the highest, isn't it, in the MLS in terms of average attendance. That's pretty impressive.
6: Yeah, no, we're excited. So Seattle's always been the benchmark as a, the Seattle Sounders as a club that you know, gets great audiences. But we could be the biggest uh, ever in the history of Major League Soccer. The highest ever is 44,500. We're currently trending towards about 47,000 average crowds. So that'd be the biggest ever in the history of MLS. And we're excited. We've got a game in two weeks' time against Orlando. We're going to open up our whole new Mercedes-Benz Stadium and try and break the record ever for attendance of 70,000. So so it looks like we're on track to do that. So it's pretty exciting times for soccer in America.
2: And this is not the first big stadium move that you've been involved in because you were a big part of the early planning for the new Tottenham uh, White Hart Lane which of course they'll move into hopefully fingers crossed uh, next summer. Um, what do you think that stadium is going to bring your old club?
6: Look I think it's going to be huge for them. Um, you know it's always been the issue that White Hart Lane, which was a great venue, very intimate but in terms of revenue it was very difficult to compete with, for example Arsenal and the Emirates Stadium. So the fact that you've now got a chance to go to this stadium, that's going to give you that match day revenue, give you the commercial revenue. I think the reality is that, you know, if I'm a Spurs fan, looking at the future, I'd be very happy.
4: And have you been to visit the new stadium? uh, And what do you think it will actually give to Spurs?
6: Yeah, look, I mean, I think, look, purely from... I'm really pleased that they kept the stand that's a single tier, because I think that's important. You're going to create a great atmosphere there, a little bit like Borussia Dortmund with that sort of wall of noise behind the goal. So I think that that was a really smart move by Tottenham. Because, you know, you still need to have that fan atmosphere. You still need to make the home venue feel like uh, an advantage. I mean, look, it's a little bit like what they're going through at the moment with Wembley in this interim year. You know, it's a real difficulty. If you're playing at a venue that you don't get that home advantage from, you're behind the eight ball a bit. So I think that's going to be great from an atmosphere perspective. But, you know, from a commercial perspective, you're in London, so straight away you're an advantage in attracting players. If you now add on that extra revenue, I think it gives the team a chance to perhaps stretch the wages a little bit more. And, and put together a team that can, year in, year out, be top four and pushing for the championship.
2: You negotiated some of the biggest deals in the club's history, including the, the Gareth Bale deal. I mean, how, how difficult was that to get over the line and, and how mind-boggling was it? I mean, we see all these big figures now, but back then, it was only—I mean, it was only a few years ago, but it was almost unthinkable that a player would go from a Premier League club to a big Spanish giant for that sort of price
6: yeah look it was pretty amazing and it was it was a very as you would not be surprised when Daniel's involved. It was a complicated deal because he was pushing for every <laughs> every penny and uh, I remember a couple of times where it looked like you know the deal was going to be dead and then we'd resurrect it in the morning but it was it was one of the most complicated deals uh certainly i've ever been involved in, right down to which currency was going to be used in terms of the contract, and you know it ended up being just a negotiation on every single point you could think of was negotiated, but it finally got done on that sort of deadline day. So it was, uh, that was where my hair started to go, I think, after uh, doing that deal.
2: <laughs> what was it like dealing with Daniel Levy on a day-to-day basis? I mean, did he sort of literally negotiate over absolutely everything? He
6: was pretty, uh, yeah, he was pretty tough. I mean, I had a, a couple of owners because of Jeremy Peace when I was at West Bromwich Albion was, to be fair, Daniel's equal in terms of driving a hard bargain, and I'll tell a quick story. We were signing a player, a goalkeeper, on loan. So think about it. It was only a loan deal with an option. And we couldn't agree to sell on, on the option with a club from Czechoslovakia. And it was getting to the point where the deal was going to break down because he was only prepared to offer... Um, he wanted. We were only prepared to offer 10%. So what I did was I got three shirts from the locker room. We're at the West Brom training ground. I got a 10, a 15, and a 20. We put them face down on the table, and we got the security guard. It was about 11 o'clock at night to come in and pick one, and he picked the 15, so 15% was what we did in the contract and got that deal done to (laughs) him. But, uh, yeah, Daniel was a little bit like that, too. He'll push for everything. But the great thing about Daniel, and look, I think you you see it now, is everything he does is with Tottenham's you know, thought in mind about what's best for the club. And he drives that hard bargain because he wants the best for Spurs and to steward the club as he has done now into the new stadium with a team that's, you know, in the champions league, I think has shown incredible, um, incredible fortitude and foresight when there's so much money from, you know, whether it's Chelsea and, you know, having an oligarchy could put the money in or whether it's Manchester City with in effect a country behind them, he's managed to punch above his weight for that time period. So great credit to him.
2: Um, it's a very different system, isn't it, in the uh, United States? The MLS, is it seems to be a little bit fairer. It, it's more sort of equal in terms of who's allowed to spend what. It's different for you because you're working with things like salary caps and designated players. Um, do you think it's a better system? What, what do you make of it?
6: Um, it's a different system. I mean, I think it's better for America because they had a history of the professional league's folding in soccer, the NESL, when Pele played and Beckenbauer what basically went bust because they didn't have the safety net in place so so it's working really well in america to have this salary cap environment they're used to it with the other sports but what it means sam is you've got to be strategic about how you build a squad you can't do you know your left back's not good enough you can't just go out and buy another left back you've got to make do with with the play you've got and what it means is it it focuses you on every single decision so your third goalkeeper if you spend more than the minimum salary on a third goalkeeper that's less money that you've got to spend on your striker so every decision is crucial so i mean i like it it's i think it rewards those teams that are i'm a competitive guy so if you're better at putting a squad together you're more likely to be near the top of the league so You can't have any excuses. You can't moan that someone else has got more money because everybody's got the same amount.
4: Relatively new franchise at Atlanta. Is there a a local derby, a rivalry that you're trying to cultivate at the moment?
6: Yeah, I mean, this is a funny thing. So our local derby is Orlando. So that's the big rivalry for us. We've had two games against them so far. They're 440 miles away. They're our closest (laughs) team. But it's, uh, you know, they're the team in the south as well as us. So that tends to be our our local rivalry. But that's, you know, the... The difference in America is, it sounds obvious, but, you know, the distances. We're traveling over to the West Coast, traveling through three time zones to play matches. You've got differences in weather. We played this year against Minnesota. Our second game was the coldest ever game in MLS history. You know, it snowed. It was like minus 20 degrees. And then three weeks later, you're playing in Atlanta and it's 90 degree weather. So you have a lot more differences in temperature, a lot more travel that's, uh, you know, it's not like the furthest game for Tottenham was Newcastle. That was less than 400 miles. You know, it's, it's just different. You've got to cope with different things. But, you know, it's great fun. And the Orlando rivalry for us, we've got this game in two weeks, 70,000 in our new stadium. The roof's going to be shut. It's going to be so noisy. And I think that will be where you, it'll send waves around America that crumb 70,000 for a soccer game. This is real now. This sport's made it in America.
2: Um, you've obviously used some of your Premier League connections because you've got some uh, players I recognise on your roster, but also you've got um, Alan Green as your play-by-play commentator.
6: Yeah, that was uh, that was good. I actually, did a world service about interview about eighteen months ago, and Alan hosted it. We had a chat. We kept in touch, and so for me, we have a, our colour commentator is a, an American player, Dan Gargan, who played in the league. But we wanted to try and have someone who's you know a voice that people would recognise. So Alan was perfect for us. Especially as a first year team as we're trying to promote our broadcast. And so, yeah, we're really excited to get him on board. And obviously the one thing that's funny is yeah, Alan can be, as you know, quite sort of uh, shoot from the hip. <laughs> so if you think about the MLS, they're trying to grow the league. They're trying to they want their commentators to always say the good about everything. And Alan's not like that. So we have a <laughs> away game against DC United and we'd had a home game with 50,000 that Alan had commentated on Then at DC they'd had about 10,000 at their game it was a low crowd and Alan spent the whole commentary saying things like wow there's more ball boys on the pitch than there are crowds in the stand <laughs> <laughs> and- oh. and- <laughs> DC got a call like yeah the crowd were all cheering all 10 of them and so Eminos gave me a call saying, could you just have a word with him? Try and get him to sort of be a little bit more positive about the opposition. Ah.
2: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. It's ta- that's just traditional Greeny, though, isn't it? I mean, that's exactly what he's like. He, he you know, he shoots from the hip, he tells you like it is. So, you know, all power yeah, yeah. to him. Uh, you've also got some players that played in the Premier League as well, haven't you?
6: Yes, yeah, so we've got a few of the lads. We've got Kevin Jones is, uh, is with us. Chris McCann, who played at Burnley. Um, you know, Chris was... Chris came over, we did our kit launch before the season started, so because we didn't have a team, we weren't like Orlando or um, Seattle, we didn't have a minor league team stepping up, so any chance we got for a party, we we did it. (laughs) So when we did our kit launch, Chris was playing for Coventry, we flew him out just midweek to do the kit launch, and we hired a downtown music venue in Atlanta, quite a famous place where Bob Dylan did his first concert, et cetera. Uh, and we had 5,000 out for this kit launch. And we did, you know, typical American style. It was way over the top. Confetti, the boys came out into, you know, strobe lighting with the smoke through a big stage that we'd set up for them. And I think Chris was like, bloody hell, you know, Burnley Coventry's never done a kit launch <laughs> quite like this. So uh, those guys have been great for us because they've got the experience, obviously. We've got a young team. Our designated players, we didn't go down the Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard ended contract routes. We went for under twenty three South American players that are are international. So we needed a balance of experience and youngsters, so they've done a really great job for us as as being that sort of wiser, older voice in the in the sort of locker room.
2: And uh, you mentioned before that uh, you, you know the, uh, the the new franchise thing, moving into a new stadium, is very very difficult. Has David Beckham been on the phone to you now that it looks as if his Miami franchise is uh, uh, just around the corner? Is he going to be uh, chewing your ear for a bit of advice? What do you reckon?
0: Yeah,
6: I think so. I, really look up. I know from my time at Tottenham when he trained with us. Um, the a couple of times when he came back from America. He was actually at the Board of Governors meeting, the equivalent of the like the Premier League Shelves meeting we have, and he's close to getting the franchise. And you know the interesting thing with David, and we'll have a chat about it, is everyone's been saying that Miami's not a very good soccer town. Um, they had a couple of teams that have folded in the past. But, you know, I would use Atlanta as a good example. Everybody said that Atlanta wouldn't succeed with a soccer team. They had an ice hockey team, Sam, about seven years ago that folded, and the view was... That Atlanta's not a real sports city. Well, look, you know, we're now halfway through our season, but we're going to be breaking all the records the MLS has ever had. We're going to be, we are now currently the biggest team outside of the NFL. So we're bigger than any baseball, basketball, or ice hockey team in America. So I think for David's view, don't listen to the naysayers. Just focus on that younger. This is what's happening in America. There's a younger millennial group that loves soccer, that love the international aspect. They don't want to sit for four and a half hours in a baseball game. They don't want to be told when to chant in NFL games like that happens with NFL. They want to be, they want to own the fan experience. They want to feel part of this different, you know, younger generation. I think that's what he needs to focus on. So I'm sure we'll have a drink or two and chat that through when he finally officially gets the franchise.
2: Are you going to give him a five-stripe shirt?
6: Yeah, yeah. You know, we'll, he's welcome to come along and uh, <laughs> wear the five-stripes, but... Uh, yeah, look, he'll be great for the league. I mean, the thing with David is, until you've been out in America, he was, the, he was really the man that changed MLS's, trans, you know, the way that they were, they were going. He came and made a real difference, and he's still a, you know, he's a big news wherever he goes in America. So for the league, he's going to be fantastic to be part of an ownership group coming into the league. So, you know, I really like that stadium sort of in the next couple of months because he's going to be a real asset to the league.
2: Darren, thank you very much for coming on the programme. Really appreciate it. Good luck for the rest of the season. Good luck with the new stadium launch in a couple of weeks. I'm sure you'll break that record. And good luck getting into the playoffs as well. I know you're in the final berth at the moment, but uh, it's been a really fantastic start uh, for that franchise. So good luck to you. Thanks very much for coming on the programme.
1: Thanks. Cheers. Get in touch on Instagram or Twitter.
2: Don't forget you can subscribe to the Mirror Football Podcast on iTunes. Very easy for you to do. All you have to do is go on your little app or you can uh, do it via your Mac as well. Once you've subscribed, it just lands every single week. Um, Right, so this week's going to be really busy for me. I'm going Derby Hull on Friday night in the Championship, hosting that for TalkSport. And then Saturday, it's Stoke against Manchester United. Next midweek, I've got Liverpool and Everton. In, uh, in Europe so
4: very much looking forward to that Busy week What are you up to? I'm uh, Getting the popcorn ready ready for the Saturday game against Man City It's going and... to be huge Are you yeah. a little bit nervous about it? How do you feel it's going to go? Uh, no I'm always quite confident against Man City and I think they're well, Because last... they're so open Well yeah and their last minute winner against Bournemouth papered over a lot of kind of really ordinary cracks for Man City so no I'm quietly confident guy. You actually
2: there. were sending me quite abusive text messages about the decision to play Kevin De Bruyne
4: so deep Well it's ridiculous he just got sold his his price plummeted after that game. I think about 300,000 fantasy managers binned him from their team. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I'm probably going to go off now and give the middle finger to a ref. Okay.
2: Is it... no, oh, no, 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 no. It's not that ref. It's Martin Skirtle. Okay. No. Hold on. It's, me it's, mate. it's your friend. It's me mate. It's Don't tell anyone. Uh, that's it from us. We're back next week. Uh, make sure you uh, leave us your comments on Twitter at StayOnYourFeet or you can go on our Instagram page which is at StayOnYourFeet TV.